This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. What I have seen is a shift in thinking from it's just going to be a reopening to it's going to be a very, very slow and gradual return to some version of normal. Hi, and welcome to the EM Weekly Show, the Emergency Management Podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week, we are talking with Danielle Holly of Common Impact. Common Impact is a nonprofit that works to build and strengthen communities. Danielle and I talk about the idea of virtual volunteering and how they have an impact on the current crisis that we are dealing with. Volunteering during the time of uncertainty is critical to the idea of community. We see that when people volunteer, they feel that they have a part in the process, and they also feel that they're not a burden on the system. Volunteering helps with rebuilding the community as well as keeping community identity. Now on to the interview. Danielle, welcome to, or welcome back to Ian Weekly. I'm so excited to be back. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Todd. So you are realistically right in the middle of the impact zone with the ground zero, if you will, for uh, COVID-19. How's it going? It certainly feels like that, yeah. So Common Impact is headquartered in Brooklyn. That's where my home is and just uh, the center of it all right now. You know, sirens going by every two minutes or so. It's eerie, you know. I think New York is responding to this in um, in both kind of the where we're going to get through this together. And it's very much, speaking of ground zero, it reminds me a lot of post-September 11th, mm-hmm. where for a moment in time, all those headstrong New Yorkers <laughs> were willing to collaborate and, and unite as one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, absolutely a new normal. And it's obviously just not New York, right? This is something that the entire country is in and the entire world is in together. And it's been, in some ways, a great equalizer, right? It is not hard to find common chit-chat at the beginning of calls these days. <laughs> it's, uh, there is one topic. <laughs> and the challenge is actually kind of bridging away from that topic. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen in our work and that you've seen in headlines, I'm sure, is that it's actually not a great equalizer, right? Like this is revealing the inequities in our society and the folks that are underserved are getting harder hit by this. So it's been um, interesting and enlightening to be at the forefront of it. People choose to live where they live for different reasons in New York specifically because of the the grand city it is and the ability to to go out and and walk to places from your home to just grab dinner and, and, and whatnot and to be part of the hustle and the bustle. Even if you're like living some of the smaller areas such as, you know, Brooklyn or Staten Island or whatever, there's still that ability to do that. It's gone, you know, so it is a change in, in the way you do uh, life, huh? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's been interesting. We walk, we, uh, we live in a, a more residential neighborhood in Brooklyn. So not the big apartment buildings and the streets are not super crowded even during normal times, but it's just, you know, walking down the block and I'm so excited to see another human being. (laughs) I want to engage with them as much as possible. Um, But we we are all treating each other like poison in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're trying to get as far apart from each other as possible, but have this underlying urge to really be connected and engage with each other more now than ever. Yeah, it's interesting. I live in the suburbs of Los Angeles and, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves being in this, in the suburbs, right? It's kind of like the the thing, uh, live in the OC, if you will. And, (laughs) and it's funny because like normally you, you don't see people and maybe in the morning people exercising that are walking or, or, uh, you know, maybe walking their dog or whatever. But for the most part, it's, it's just those people. And it, it's fun. I live in a cul-de-sac and it's fun to see people actually walking now together as families and, and doing things like that in a way um, that you didn't see in the suburbs of Orange County. Uh, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So there's, there's definitely that shift. But, you know, there are people that are being impacted by this in a, in a big negative way and you kind of alluded to that to those that are underserved what are you guys doing to help those right now that are, are underserved and, and how is that outreach look well so the headlines on this are just so stark and in terms of the communities that are being impacted I just a headline this morning that the um, the african-american population specifically is really hard hit because of underlying health conditions that exist because there's low access to general health care and healthy nutrition. There is discrimination and hospitalization and medical care. And so 13% of the population, but there's 30% of the folks that are impacted by COVID. And a common impacts approach is always to support the nonprofit organizations that are in normal times alleviating inequality, but right now that inequality is particularly stark. And so we're trying to bring online very quickly the virtual skills-based volunteer models that are going to support these nonprofit organizations that are on the front line, whether that's the food food delivery services or the educational organizations or the shelters, the health clinics. We, this is unprecedented. We talked about September 11th before and this feels even more extreme. Um, you know, the the rate of deaths and the impact to the economy, and it's just a nasty combination. And most nonprofit executives and leaders have not experienced this before, mm-hmm. right? And so getting on the phone with someone who has done financial scenario planning before or someone who has done crisis communication and management, business continuity, and that's just their day job and they've been doing it for years and they can give leaders a compass on what to think about, right? Like you're not going to give them all the answers and they're not going to be able to, in a short time period, uh, work on something extensive with them in partnership with them, but they can give folks a sense of where do I go and what do I think about and what tools are out there that I don't have to reinvent the wheel when I have to move a mile a minute and my the demand and services is significantly upticking while the resources that they have to deliver those services are dropping 
really rapidly. So that's the approach we're trying to take. We're trying to just get to get the nonprofits the support they need and the type of support they need as quickly as possible. And the companies that we've been working with are ready for it. <laughs> they are ready to respond. They're being really proactive. They're stripping down some of the formalities of the programs and the bureaucracy that you sometimes see that's just natural at these big companies. They're really, this is teaching us that there's a lot more that's possible than um, what we think is possible during strong economic times and times when it's, you know, it's feasible to think about all the policies that you need to think about and all of the rings that you need to jump through. Mm -hmm. They just start to dissipate at times like this. You know, it's interesting. And we talked about unprecedented times that this is the first time in the history of our nation that every state and territory is under a federal declaration of disaster. I mean, it opens up some things, open up some, some, money and some, some support and things like that. But at the same time, can we, and I say afford, and I know that we can, I want to say we, the federal government can just create funding. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird concept for people, but you know, they could just create funding, but you know, but they can't create people. And so if they're sending additional people out to help in every state and in every territory, our resources, our human resources are being spread super thin and so I think that, well, I shouldn't say think, I, I know at this point that these states and territories are looking for help from unique organizations. How do you see us going forward helping, and I say us, the collective us, the, the United States, the, the world for that matter, how do you see us moving forward to be able to help those that are in need when our human resources are stretched thin. I mean, we can write checks all day long, but that only is a, is a Band-Aid approach. We, we really need to have boots on the ground to help individuals kind of get back up together or or businesses to be able to restart because the restart's going to be kind of uh, rough, I believe. How do we help them? I think the... I think it's it's largely true that our human capital, our human resources are taxed, but I also I'm seeing a lot of variability on that, right? Like we we have seen the volunteer workforce drop off in the past couple of months at places like food delivery services and shelters, places that are powered by a volunteer workforce because a lot of that volunteer workforce is in the high risk, the older categories, and it's just been deemed unsafe. But we saw, at least in New York, we saw a 288% rise in the interest in volunteer. And some of that's virtual, uh, but people want to serve, people want to help, and that people have time. Not everyone has time, right? Like the corporate employees who just had their entire department laid off, and they now have three times the amount of work they had in March on their plates don't have time. The folks that are running nonprofits and have small children at home absolutely don't have time. But there are what this has opened up for me. And you know, speaking of like things that you think are impossible in good times and suddenly become very possible, um, this has opened up a new set of ways to engage virtually right now. Um, and yes, we definitely need in-person presence, and that's slowly coming back online but it also also i think broken down some of the stigma for providing that support in a virtual capacity over the phone over video and to even think about that as a possibility and support and services that we have traditionally thought of could only happen in person 
that's not to say that that in-person volunteer and service workforce is it, it needs to come back, right? But I think, the, and, and I very much think this is going to be a regional approach because the, the actual operating realities of our cities are so different. The cultures of our cities are so different that the balance between the loss of life and the loss of economic um, gain is going to be, that's going to be a different picture in you know New York versus Minnesota versus Florida versus Alaska. And I just, I think we've got to figure out, at least from my perspective, as I think about running Common Impact, we've got to figure out what the city's bounds are and then figure out how we work within those. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is the restart. And this what I'm calling it. I don't. I don't know if anybody else is calling that or not. But I feel like uh, I, I picked up on the concept of the great pause and and then the, the, then the restart. And I I think it's going to be difficult for some people. A couple things, and this is multifaceted. First, let's talk about um, schools. You know, with the schools, it's going to be hard. Number one, to make a decision where to go back. Do the parents trust the fact that the schools are a safe place for their children as far as being disease-free, if you will? And then how are the kids that are staying home now, how many of them have fallen behind um, due to the lack of, I don't want to say ability because that's the sound is I think everybody has the ability, but the lack of confidence into being able to help the children through some of this education process. I know that we're we're doing some math issues here with my son who's in in the tenth grade, and I mean I've had to watch I had to watch some videos to figure out what the heck's going on because I, I haven't done that math since I was in tenth grade, and that was a long time ago. You know, that's my worst nightmare. <laughs> I yeah, I don't I don't know how parents are doing it. I really I you know I think. Um, the I, I am lucky enough, for better or worse, to have two very young children, so I don't have to deal with the mental health issues that are coming out of this for parents, and I don't have to deal with the homeschooling. But I think that's very real, particularly for the of older grades, right, where still needs support and supervision, but it's it's actually meaningful in terms of their track to college applications and and later career and vocational schools. And so, you know, I think um, this, the restart, what I have seen is a shift in thinking from it's just going to be a reopening to it's going to be a very, very slow and gradual return to some version of normal, right? Like what is the, what, how do we get kids in schools? How do we get homeless? folks experiencing homelessness into homeless shelters? How do we get food in the mouths of people who need it? Um, but it's also interconnected. I, mean, I you know, the, the childcare scenario is I think really central because without childcare, how do you bring essential workers? Absolutely. I, I don't even know what, how they're doing it. <laughs> I bow down at the altar of essential workers because I have no idea how this is working for them without someplace to, um, to care for their children. Um, but, you know, that level out from not the essential workers, but that next level of workers that allows our economy to open to the next degree, whatever that degree is, 
where are their children going to go? Yeah. Right. Like if, if daycares and schools don't open, then can we open businesses? It's just, um, it's also interconnected. Yeah. I mean, it is. And, oh gosh, I, I'm trying to think of how long ago it was at least 10 years ago. Uh, when we were maybe longer, when we were discussing pandemic flu, and that's the term that we use, flu, right? Uh, pan flu plans. The statistics and, and the research that we did on this bared out that we're probably going to have a 40% reduction in the workforce just because of childcare. And now, it actually, we were we were too conservative on that because I could actually see it going higher than that Or at this point. I mean, if you're losing, if you have a, a dual income family, you may end up losing one of those incomes due to somebody having to stay home with the kids because there is no daycare available at this point and there possibly isn't schools reopening and and so that's the challenge right there and not saying that a middle income family can afford to have that second person not work uh, but if you're talking about the the lower half of on the income scale they can't afford not to go to work there's I mean, it's not tightening the belts at that point. They don't have a. There's nothing to tighten. They're they're gonna. They're not gonna be able to afford food and or shelter at this point. And so, what do we do to help people in the restart? And they have to be. I mean, this is my personal opinion. They have to be central to the federal and state relief policies. If they. I don't know if you've been following this payroll protection program and the intention of that program was to support small businesses and nonprofits who were employing some of these essential workers and or low income folks and or serving them. Right. And what happened was because the policy wasn't structured appropriately is there were a lot of big businesses who didn't need it that got it and left other organizations out to try and that to me is it it has to be a government relief because there's it's all to you know the fact that it's also interconnected there's there's not a safety net that we can look to in the private sector and the nonprofit sector for this particular challenge yeah the la lakers got a couple million dollars and they they're giving it back but it's just like (laughs) it's a billion dollar industry i don't think that they needed that money compared to some of the small businesses that are my neighbor owns a a restaurant he's been closed down since closed um they've been trying to do some stuff i mean he's he's struggling right now so it's a business like that that should be that should be taken care of not not the la lakers Right. And you would think that that would be baked into the policy. You know, the excuse that I've heard is that it was essentially a policy that was outsourced to the banks and the banks let these organizations and companies through. But it's just it's got to be structural. Yeah. And, and not to get political because I try, try to stay away from it, but we... We tend to we again the collective we right this is we the people um, our, our our political leaders tend to rush things through um, and not really cross those t's and dot the i's right. and then they try to walk things right. back after after that genie's out of the bottle and and so um, you know I I understand that there was a, a need and there was an emergency but sometimes for political expediency they do things that just don't make sense to me sometimes but you know I, I'm uh, like I said, I try not to get political on these things, but it just seems to be that's what they do. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, I, and you know, I think it's it must be. I don't. I 
don't envy their po- politicians' position right now, right? Because <laughs> we are in a, a scenario where we need to move incredibly rapidly and this stuff is incredibly complex. But I think at the end of the day, getting the resources and prioritizing the individuals that are underserved and that represent our essential workforce. It's it's so that that's where you start and everything else flows from there. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about exactly what you guys are doing. I know you have some exciting stuff that's happening uh, during this COVID crisis. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, We're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that break. Thank you so much for listening to our sponsor. Because without them, we really couldn't put on uh, you know programs like this and and you know bring to you what things are going on in the world and how people are doing things differently uh, in each region. And before we went on the break, we're talking just about some you know money things and and, and how to help people and and uh, you know Danielle's organization is is doing it right now on the ground in New York. So what are some of the things that you guys are doing right now to help out with this crisis? We are, so Common Impact builds skills-based volunteer programs, essentially connecting the talents, the superpowers of individuals to nonprofits in need of whether it's strategy or marketing or operations support, um, you name it, there are very few skills that don't translate and support the nonprofit sector. Uh, and right now, what we're doing is trying to understand what nonprofits need and getting those needs resourced really quickly. So we have two models that we're leaning on in this crisis. Um, one is a hotline model where we are connecting nonprofit leaders directly to experts within the private sector on whatever it is they need expertise on, whether that's financial scenario planning or crisis management and communication, as we were sharing. Um, you know, not extensive, a couple of minutes of time that leads to really just a guiding light for executives that have ever been through this before. And the other is virtual consulting. One of the, um, so the virtual consulting being, you know, an individual or a team supports an organization on a larger project like the building of a virtual communication platform or a business continuity plan for an organization. I've found that the, in the conversations that I've had with nonprofits, there's just such a different impact depending on the size of the organization and the mission of the organization. There are some organizations that don't have time for anything other than the core priorities and there are others that have their work has really slowed down or they're pausing or they're waiting for this restart to happen. And they actually, they do have the staff and the time to devote to some of the projects that have been on the wish list for a while. And that in normal, more certain times they wasn't time for, and now there is. So we're just, we're trying to not, make assumptions about what nonprofits need. And we're just trying to connect them to the private sector professionals that have 
the resource, the tools, the expertise, and the background that they need as quickly as possible. How does the virtual volunteer system work? There, in a, in a bunch of different ways. Essentially, just raise your hand via email, via Zoom. Um, we tend to start with the, the private sector. We start at the company level, right? So we'll talk to a J.P. Morgan Chase or Charles Schwab and say, what employees do you think are going to raise their hand for a virtual volunteer opportunity so that we understand what type of resource we have, right? Like we understand in general the amount of hours that could be dedicated, the types of skill sets. And then once we have that, we know what we can offer to the nonprofit community and put out a blast to say, hey, do you need these skills? Do you need this work done? And they raise their hand. All of that comes to Common Impact through our website at commonimpact.org. And we make the match. And I always say that we're not just the match.com, but we do a little marriage counseling too to make sure that um, that both sides are getting what they need out of it with you know, a real focus on the nonprofit sector. Do you see more people being interested in doing the virtual volunteerism um, now that maybe some people have more time on their hands or is there still a struggle to get volunteers to, uh, to join? No, it's floodgates. There's, there's, as I mentioned before, in New York alone, we've seen a 280% increase in the interest to volunteer, but that's national. We're seeing an uptick. One, because the direct service and the in-person volunteer experiences have diminished so much. So we're just coming off of National Volunteer Month, and that's a month where there are a ton of volunteer opportunities that typically take place, and that had to be pretty significantly scaled back. So folks are looking for ways to engage and know that they have to do that virtually. So the intent is absolutely there and we're trying to give them a mechanism and activate them, but it, it just has to be tapped into. It's the, the excitement is still there. Do you think that the volunteerism or volunteer opportunities also help people uh, deal with this crisis in, in a way that they feel that they're giving back to the community as well. And they're not just being a burden on society. I was reading an article in the times this past weekend about the mental health benefits of volunteerism and service. And it, actually that as a coping mechanism to deal with this crisis, because it there's the emotional and the mental health benefits that come from doing something for somebody else, it's just science, right? It makes you feel better. It increases your mental health and your sense of purpose and your sense of well-being and worth in the world. And so I think that's it, what you're getting at, I think, is you're hitting on the nail on the head in terms of why we're seeing this increase in volunteerism. One, people see a big challenge outside their doorsteps and want to figure out how they can help. But also, it's just cathartic. It's just... It, it increases your mental health to do something for others. I even see this. I was thinking about this the other day. This is going to sound pedantic, but I have a two and a half year old, right? And the easiest way to break him out of a te temper tantrum where he's spiraling out of control is to get him to do something for his sister, right? Like Caleb, Ara needs help <laughs> with this thing. She's struggling with this thing. And instantly he stops worrying about whatever it was he was worrying about and starts to help Ara. 
And I, I think it's just very human, right? It starts at a very young age. If you can be of service to somebody else, you are inclined to. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in the volunteers in space. You know, I find interesting too is is um, people are finding unique ways to to participate, and even if it's not necessarily a traditional volunteer organization that they're being part of, uh, and and I mean, you might even see this in New York, but I, obviously I haven't seen the news. But here locally, they have people that are uh, making. Um, uh, masks, you know, sewing them together, getting fabric and, and sewing them. And, uh, there's a group that's in Fountain Valley, uh, that they've put out like uh, something like, I don't know, it's like 60,000 masks or something like that. And then uh, my friend's wife, who's a seamstress, um, by hobby, not by trade. She's a really great, um, she makes the, um, quilts, right? Her, him and, and his kids and her, my friend's wife are making are making masks too, and he told me the same thing. He says, you know, in a way, when they're sitting there sewing, he goes, it just it kind of knows that we're doing something good for other people, and they're not charging people for the masks. They just they just give them away, and uh, I think it's I think doing things like that that kind of gives a sense of purpose uh, really does help you when you're sitting there looking at you know tragedy uh, across the place, and it gives you the ability to to participate in and maybe making a difference in helping. Yeah, I, it's just, it's been inspiring to see how people have figured out how to help. Like the stay-at-home moms that are making masks and the folks that like, you know, thought of sewing as a, a nice side hobby. It's now incredibly critical and central to how we're going to survive and reemerge into the world. And there's been so much of that, right? Like people just connect to what they care about and what they're good at and they want to give it away. And so I've actually, I usually find social media channels a really draining experience in general and try to stay away from them, like the Twitters and Mm -hmm. the Instagrams of the world. But I found that it's actually a really interesting portal right now into how people are individually taking on trying to help. Right. And your story is a great example of that. So I want you to take out your crystal ball here for a minute and, and, and uh, No, I don't have yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you see us coming out of this pause? What do you what what are the new norms gonna look like for, for people across the country and maybe specifically in New York? So I think it's gonna be slow. I think it's going to be is something that we all, it's going to be a continued adjustment, right? There was the shock to the system that happens at the onset of disaster like this. And then we're now in this moment of grieving what was and not knowing what's to come. And I think once we have a better sense of what's to come, it's, people are going to approach it differently, right? Like I could see this virtual environment sticking with us for quite a bit longer that people have realized, okay, we can make this virtual work thing work for the most part, particularly, you know, corporate America and we'll probably be slow to return and probably figure out new ways of connecting to people. The, when I think about a very common New York activities, going out to restaurants and being in bars, I I don't think that's going to look like it's looked in the past potentially ever, but certainly in the next year where you, you know, you're not going to be in a crowded restaurant until at least the end of next year. Um, and so I think it's, it'll be interesting to see the mental resiliency and toll that this takes 
the one positive, not one, I'd say overarching, I'm pretty positive about what this could mean for paradigm shifts, right? To me, this has highlighted the incredibly hard and critical work that our essential workers do, that our black and brown neighbors do, that that working mothers, working parents do, right? Having that balancing act front row and center um, on conference calls, et cetera. I think it's, it's highlighting some of the things that were wrong and could we could potentially fix about society after this is over. And it does. It, it requires a shock to the system. And I think we were overdue for one. This is certainly one. <laughs> so, I mean, if I were to say, if I were to have a crystal ball, I'd say this gets hard, right? Through the end of the year and there's going to be more adjustments that's needed. And I think this is going to be net positive for us. Outstanding. Danielle, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It's so fun to talk to you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for listening to EM Weekly. And don't forget to subscribe to EM Weekly on your favorite podcast player. And if you are interested in more podcasts, also check out sitchradio.com the home of EM Weekly.